This podcast is produced and issued by Morningstar Investment Management, LLC, a registered investment advisor and subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. The content is intended for U.S. audiences only. Individuals featured in this podcast are employed by Morningstar, Inc. and its subsidiaries. This includes, but is not limited to, Morningstar Investment Management, LLC and Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services are registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Stay tuned for additional important disclosure information at the end of this episode. On November 16th, 2009, Sergei Magnitsky, a Russian attorney, was brought to Matryoshka Tishina, a notorious prison in northeast Moscow. Magnitsky had been in prison nearly a year by this point and developed gallstones and pancreatitis after having been transferred from prison to increasingly foul and torturous prison, according to an account in The New Yorker. Matryoshka Tishina would be his last. There he was handcuffed to a bed and beaten to death. Magnitsky had been charged with abetting tax evasion for his client, Heritage Capital, a hedge fund that invested in Russia. However, Heritage's owner, Bill Browder, says Magnitsky was punished for uncovering a corrupt tax grab scheme that saw Russian police and government officials absconding with $230 million. In response, in 2012, the U.S. Congress passed the Magnitsky Act, which sanctions Russian human rights violators and other officials implicated in abuse of power cases, and which has been a subject of furious preoccupation for Vladimir Putin ever since, again, according to The New Yorker. Now, this is a dramatic story, but even before you heard it, would you have considered investing in Russia? Many would not, and understandably so. We at Morningstar Investment Management consider ourselves to be disciplined, risk-aware investors, Yet we are also contrarians and have owned Russian stocks in many of our portfolios for more than a year. We have recently done a deep dive research project into the asset class, and joining me today to discuss that project and our current views on Russia is Nabil Salem, Senior Investment Analyst at Morningstar Investment Management. Nabil, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. Now, Nabil, you were here for our Millennials episode, so this is really a, a welcome back. Okay, so Russia. There's a lot of negative sentiment in this country toward Russia. I think you know a lot of people would see it as an enemy to the U.S. dating back to the Cold War. And as the story I just told justifies to some extent, uh, Russia is still very much an emerging market. So you know why would anyone want to invest in Russia? Yep. So I think the short answer is that everything has a price and. It's kind of funny because despite this long history of governance issues, Russia has actually been one of the top performing emerging markets since the early 2000s, though it certainly has not been a smooth ride. So if you were to invest 20 years ago when Vladimir Putin came into power in 1999 in Russia, you actually would have outperformed the MSCI Emerging Markets Index by about 60% cumulatively. So there's been tons of issues. You know, these governance issues have been there the whole time. And then there's been oil fluctuations, commodity, other commodity price fluctuations, and sanctions applied to Russia, and you still end up meaningfully ahead. And in fairness, this is I've kind of picked a time period where you would have invested right after the Russian market had collapsed. So it kind of shows that there is a lot of power in investing when everything around you looks bad. Um, and, so and so when you said, when you, approach. yeah, sorry, when, when you said the, the price is right, you mean the, the sort of the buying price, the fact that there's sort of the valuation, the, the price for what you get is attractive? Yeah. So basically, you know, when I say everything has a price, I mean, just as you said, 
essentially the market also you know knows about all these governance issues and any other outstanding issues with a Russian investment or any given investment and incorporates that into the stock price. And at times, they incorporate more than is justified by what is actually happening. So uh, Russia, for years, has traded at a meaningful discount to the overall emerging markets based off of pretty much any multiple that you would use. And there have been times where that discount has become really extreme, and that's when you might consider an investment in Russia. When the price gets beaten down by yeah. by the market. And is the governance in Russia as, as bad as it sometimes seems, like with the story I, I started with? Yeah, so I think, you know, that story is pretty incredible about what happened to Bill Browder and Sergei Magnitsky, and there are many other stories of poor governance and corruption throughout Russia beyond just what happens in the companies that affect the stock market, just, you know, generally, you know, if you have friends who visited Russia, they'll tell you, oh, the police pulled me over, I had to pay them a bribe and all these things. And I think it's unquestionable that Russia deserves some of its bad reputation and deserves to trade at a discount relative to the broader emerging market index. But we also have to remind ourselves that we have this psychological bias, it's called the negativity bias, and that basically leads people to overly focus on the negative outcomes, even if the negative is happening just as often as the positive. So when you look at Russia, for example, they have all these governance issues, which to some extent have been improving in some ways, limited ways, but they also have some of the world's best companies within their specific industries, and I can talk about that a little bit more. And you also have to consider that Russia is not the only country that has a poor human rights uh, track record. Uh, So it doesn't seem very popular amongst the investor community to say we're not going to invest in Chinese companies, even though China arguably has a lot of human rights violations and allegations of corruption in their system. And there are definitely concerns about the levels of disclosure that you get when you invest in a Chinese company but the discount doesn't seem to be applied in that instance. So we're more comfortable investing where we know that there's already a discount priced in to the stock versus you know, investing in another country, not saying that this is exactly the case with China, but investing in another country where the governance has the potential to be equally as poor but just isn't priced in. This is probably a, a good point to say that what an emerging market really means is that the stock market itself has some struggles, some issues with governance and other things yep. that cause the index providers to you know, put each market into a you know, category of developed or, or developing mm-hmm. based on some of these factors that aren't necessarily economically based. They're really more about the transparency and the functionality of markets. Is that right? Yeah, and I think the economics do matter, you know, so if you have a very low GDP to capita, you're going to be an emerging market, even if your governance system is pretty strong. And actually, I don't know. So like, if you look at the emerging market index, depending on the index that you look at, South Korea is in that index. And that's kind of surprising to people, because if you ever visit South Korea, it's a very developed country. The average person would say, you know, wow, they have all this technology, it's clean, it's well built. The people are educated and sophisticated, and that's not the they have stereotype K-pop. of what. Yeah, they have K-pop, <laughs> uh, and that's not the stereotype of what an emerging market is. And it's more based off of some of the GDP per capita, and then some other governance elements, depending on which index that you look at. 
Greece fell into some some providers made Greece an emerging market, right? When when it had all of the struggles it did, and, and again, like it's sort of a, I guess maybe a combination of economic issues and amount of debt it had, and uh, just sort of the functionality of its markets. Yeah, I think it's. Um, yeah, I don't know what their GDP to capita is offhand, mm-hmm. but I'm sure it's not great. Yeah, yeah. Well, you had mentioned how well-run some of these companies are, and so maybe next we can turn to talking about the Russian market in general mm-hmm. uh, and, and specifically some of those stocks in it. What are, what are we getting when we invest in the Russian stock market and how concentrated is it? What are what are the sectors that dominate? And yep. you know, can you give us that background? So the Russian stock market is very highly concentrated. There's about 50 holdings in the total index, and the top 10 holdings comprise about 80% of the index. And that still doesn't really give you a sense of how concentrated it is because the top three companies comprise around half of the total Russian market. And those three companies are Gazprom, Lukoil, and Sparebank. And I can talk a little bit about what each of those companies are, but just still focusing on Russia broadly, it's 60%, a little over 60% by market cap exposed to energy companies. And then even the financial sector has a lot of exposure, unsurprisingly, to the energy market. So those top three holdings in the Russian stock market include Gazprom, which is the largest oil producer in the world and owns the largest natural gas field in the world. And it trades at four times earnings, while other emerging market integrated oil companies, or energy companies, excuse me, traded around nine times. Mm-hmm. Luke Oil is also one of the largest global producers of oil and trades about five times earnings. And then Sparebank is Russia's largest bank, and they control about half of all the bank branches in Russia. And they're just massively more profitable than any other major bank that you would find around the world. So they have returns on equity of around 20% with lower leverage than you know any comparable bank. So if you can look at it, uh, you know, Intesa or... So Italian look, bank. Yeah, you can look at pretty much any bank around the world, and you won't see the combination of really high ROEs, really high market share, and lower leverage, and spare bank trades at about six times earnings and pays a 7% dividend yield. And a lot of the reason that it pays such a high yield is because of all the investor fears around the governance issues just broadly in Russia. So here you have this really high quality company just based off of its market dominance. And if you to remove the governance issues, you could easily see spare banks multiple, probably triple. But the corporate management know this, and so they end up paying a larger dividend just to somewhat overcome that uh, reluctance of investors to to venture into the Russian market. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's true. the The Russian finance ministry has been encouraging a lot of the state owned enterprises, which include both Sparebank and Gazprom, to increase their dividend payouts. So by that, I mean, you know, these companies are generating a dollar of earnings and they are being encouraged by the finance ministry to pay out a larger percentage of that dollar as a dividend to investors rather than keeping it on the balance sheet of the company. And that's where investors are concerned that the assets of the company are basically being misused or um, when they're kept on the balance sheet, yeah. they, they could be seized by the government. They could be wrapped up in one of these sort of schemes that uh, that politicians or, or the police or whoever it is might be involved in. And yeah. as long as it's sitting there, investors don't feel it's as safe as, as when it's returned to their own pockets. Yeah, that's the bottom line. I think it's also 
generally just, you know, if the company's reached a point of saturation, is you know, a very stable company, doesn't have a lot of growth prospects, they should be paying out higher dividends. So it's interesting that, uh, you know, we've talked about the poor governance in Russia, but here's an element where the, the government really has kind of stepped in and tried to encourage better governance uh, among these uh, Russian companies to make them more sort of shareholder friendly. Yep. So what has driven the strong returns in the Russian market this year? It's kind of amazing. So if you look at the price performance, as you mentioned, it's very strong. And then what you would expect based off of that price performance is that if you look at the multiples, that the multiples have expanded. So, for example, if you look at the P.E., you would expect if the price performance increased by 29%, you would expect that the multiple, the P.E., would have increased. But if you look at— Because the earnings wouldn't likely increase by 39% in a year. Is that the yeah, denominator I mean, is not, not going to increase? It's but it's— uh, not the most likely outcome, yep. is what I would say. And it's just kind of amazing because if you look at the Russian stock market, the PEs are actually stable. So that means that the earnings of the Russian companies are pretty high over the past year. They've expanded. And at the same time, the dividend yield, which should definitely have uh, stayed the same if the price just increases, has actually also increased. So what's really happening is that you're getting this kind of double whammy of earnings being strong and as we've kind of just talked about, to some extent, Russian companies have been paying out a higher percentage of their earnings as dividends. And so cash is being returned to shareholders. And just given all this long history of governance issues, I think investors are pretty pleased to see that the earnings are being returned to them. And it's you know led to pretty significant uh, price appreciation. So normally after a significant price appreciation like we've seen in Russia, I think we would expect that market to become less attractive to us because like you said, those multiples would be different and mm-hmm. it just, you know, the starting price has gone up that much. Is that true? I mean, you did your recent deep dive on Russian stocks. Did you come up with a different finding than you did previously and, and one that's uh, sort of less, less positive? Uh, yeah. So whether or not Russian stocks are less attractively priced right now depends on your view of the future payouts. And so if Russian companies increase the cash return to shareholders as a percentage of earnings to 50%, our estimate using our valuation implied return model of the expected return would be somewhere around 7% per year over the course of the next 10 years in real terms, which may not sound that exciting. But when you look at that 7% return relative to most other asset classes, it would be a very attractive asset class. But the U.S.'s similar number, a comparable number is what? Zero. Zero. Zero to slightly negative. But that is our bull case, as you would put it. Our baseline is not necessarily to give the credit to these companies already to say that they're going to increase their payouts. We tend to be a little bit more conservative and you know, want to invest where there's a margin of safety. So we say, well, we think the Russian companies are going to keep their payout ratios to where they currently are, and those payout ratios have increased meaningfully. And in doing so, we say our estimate of the expected return is lower than that 7%-ish number. And then we would look at that number relative to our other asset classes and hope that there is some upside, but we also know that there's is possibly some downside. So we do a whole scenario analysis around what that expected return number would be based off of our inputs into our valuation model. But our baseline is saying that we would generate around a three and a half 
to 4% return over the next 10 years annualized, which is less attractive than when we initially initiated a position in Russian stocks. So still relatively attractive to other opportunities in the you know, asset class uh, opportunity set, but but not the sort of screaming bargain or the great opportunity it seemed like a year or a year and a half ago. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think whether or not our portfolio managers will own Russian stocks really depends on the overall construction of their portfolios and their estimate of the reward for risk of the aggregate portfolio if you include Russian equities in the portfolio versus if you exclude it. We like to talk about asset classes using a, a vintage analogy, which can probably be improved on since I don't know how many people have wine cellars. But those who do will tell you that if you buy wines, you buy them when they're cheaper, when they're young, and you you know lay them down in a cellar or some sort of controlled climate, and you wait. And every now and then you, you go in and, and have a taste and see how the, the vintage is doing. And when they hit prime drinkability, you move them to your sort of drink now rack and, and then replace them in storage with a later vintage that has come along and, and lay those down. So can you explain how that pertains to our valuation-driven asset allocation approach and you know, talk about where Russian stocks are in that sort of vintage staging? Yeah, of course. So uh, it's a fun analogy. I think what's the same there? Well, we try and invest with a 10-year horizon. So we try and be really long-term in any of our investment decisions. And we try to really think about why we should invest today and we're willing to ride through ups and downs of the market and not sell something just because it's underperformed in the short term. We're actually more likely to buy something that's underperformed in the short term. And then just in terms of you know buying something when it's young, we try and be forward-looking and think about what the opportunities are for any given asset class and all of the inputs to our models, say, you know, for margins. Some analysts might look backwards and say, well, what has the margin been? Let's just assume it's going to be the same as it has been. But we try and be a little bit more forward-looking, say, well, we know that historical margins might be mean reverting to some extent, but we also have to understand, well, how the competitive dynamics changed within a given market and a lot of other factors to decide what will the right margin be for this asset class over the next 10 years rather than just taking the most recent number or some other version of a previous yeah, mean. As Howard Marks has said, no one's, no one's ever added value through extrapolation, right? Yeah. Just assuming what's, what's happened in the recent past is going to continue is not a good strategy. Right, yeah. So we're willing to hold something if it's young and we think it has a better future, then we would invest in it and hold on to it for the longer term. We think it's going to age well in the cellar. It's going to improve. And maybe not right now, but at some point we're going to crack it open and it's going to be delicious. You're better at analogies than I am. <laughs> uh, so, and then I think with respect to Russia, it's a very stable market, I don't think anyone would say, you know, 20 years from now, our baseline expectation is for the Russian market to be greatly improved in terms of its governance issues, or, you know, the baseline expectation is not for the Russian economy to grow at a really meaningful rate. A lot of the investment thesis has been around thinking that investor expectations around those governance issues are overly pessimistic. So we leave ourselves room for the upside, but we're not necessarily 
betting that it will improve. We just think there's not a lot that needs to go right for us to make a decent return. And we've held Russian stocks for a few years, and if the price appreciates enough, then we think it's appropriate to trim with the understanding that we're trimming an asset based off of our long-term views of the margins, earnings, and other fundamental inputs that you would consider when you're assessing a stock. Let's talk a bit about our process, the process the investment team uses to, you know, vet these ideas that eventually get sort of, as you mentioned, passed on to the portfolio managers for inclusion in portfolios. Where did this idea come from in the first place to invest in Russia, and when did that happen? Sure. So we keep track of the prices and the fundamental inputs of basically every index that you can invest in globally. So so that's some 200 equity indexes and 100 some bond markets yep. and 30 some currencies. Exactly. Yes. Uh, and so for each one of those different asset classes, those, you know, countries and sectors, we have baseline estimates for what the earnings, returns on capital and margins and the growth can be. And we look at least on a monthly basis, at what the opportunity set looks like. And we say, well, if something is screening as attractive relative to its history and relative to other asset classes, we should consider if it's basically a false positive or actually an opportunity to invest. And so we have this screen and we go through and we look at what countries or sectors or industries look attractive to us and then the asset class research teams decide to do a review of the asset class. So specifically with Russia, we've been keeping track of the expected return of the Russian market for several years now. And back in 2016, the U.S. announced a round of sanctions against Russia, which were particularly concerning for investors because the sanctions limited the ability of foreign investors to invest in issuances of both bonds and for the first time in equities, so Russian stocks. So say Spare Bank could not issue to an American investor new shares of its company. And that basically caused a flight out of Russian stocks. And you saw this really negative price return, which led our screening process to identify Russia as a market that might be attractive. So just based off of our initial estimates of what the earnings should be over the next 10 years, what the returns on capital should be, growth, margins, those numbers. From there, we assemble an asset class team to actually do what we call a deep dive. And so we don't want to just be buying what's done poorly with the expectation that it's definitely an opportunity just because it's done poorly because you can end up finding yourself in a situation where something sells off because the actual fundamental valuation has declined. It's known as a value trap, right? It's, it yes. looks, like a, looks like a good bargain, and then it's not because it's, it's actually on its way down because there's just nothing supporting. It's not that fundamental strength supporting it. That's right. So the global asset class team, and we have people in the U.S., in Europe, and in Asia, Australia, and in South Africa, all working together to assess the attractiveness of the specific asset class. So in the example of Russia, we looked at the fundamentals of the companies 
So, you know, looking through how concentrated is the index, what's going on with each of those companies, what's their competitive position, and we really focus on avoiding permanent losses of capital. And we think there are basically five distinct factors that most often lead to losses of capital, and those are basically operational leverage, financial leverage, risk of technological obsolescence. So basically that means if new technology is going to disrupt an old technology, no one's going to want to use that technology. So like a DVD replacing a VHS. And operational leverage is essentially business productivity? Is that? Uh, Yeah. So operational leverage you can think of if you have a technology startup, you have huge operational leverage because you have a small asset base and then suddenly if your product takes off, you get this really large increase in profits. And then if it doesn't go well, you're going to be eating a fixed cost. So operational leverage is basically a measure of how sensitive the earnings of a company are to changes in the sales. So a highly levered company might experience a small drop in sales that has a really big impact on the bottom line for investors. And financial leverage is simply just borrowing money. Yes. Yes. And again, you know, that can work out well for a company mm-hmm. if uh, if the company generates earnings and positive returns and it can generate really, really negative outcomes. And that's what we're trying to avoid. So we typically avoid or will discount a company if it's really levered. We also look at regulation. So in Russia's case was a major issue, you know, so investors are very concerned about the regulatory risk where the assets of the companies could basically be taken from under you and then you're left with nothing. And then assessing the competitive dynamics. So that really applies more in really concentrated asset classes or in industries. So saying, well, I think the energy sector which was highly relevant for Russia's case, is really competitive, so there's not really any price setting. The players in the energy market are price takers. And then you assess, well, for Russian companies, how strong are these companies relative to other companies in terms of their pricing power and their ability to operate? So Russian energy companies have lower marginal costs than the average energy company. And then once we do that analysis of the permanent loss of capital, we will develop an opinion about the valuation. So just going through again those initial estimates that we had about what the appropriate margin was, what the appropriate returns on equity and capital were, and the growth prospects for the companies, and what our expectations are for what percentage of earnings are going to be reinvested in the business versus paid out to shareholders. We also work with our peers to develop a little bit of a peer review and a devil's advocate process to think about what is it that we might be wrong about or where are we overconfident. And then we utilize our position to Morningstar's position as a premier provider of fund analysis and research to talk with outside managers who both like the asset class and dislike the asset class. So for Russia, we talked to a few investors who were also invested in Russian stocks, and we present them with some of the investor concerns about why you wouldn't want to invest and see what they have to say and just listen to their opinions. And then we also talked to some investors that we're close with 
who have avoided the asset class just to get the alternative view, and we have to address it and acknowledge that you know none of these investments are clear-cut decisions. Yeah, so it sort of relies on our ability to uh, – we have manager selection capabilities as well as portfolio management capabilities, and we're able to sort of use that to get some insights as well from others to – as you say, sort of like bounce some of our thoughts and, and the way we're thinking about these things off of them and see yep. see what uh, what their thoughts are. Absolutely. So from there, we we essentially develop a, a conviction scoring mm-hmm. for, for each asset class? Yes. So we develop this conviction score saying, based off of all of those inputs, the valuation and the fundamentals of the company and the views of where margins and all those operating metrics will be, what's the potential return that we're getting for the risk that we're taking. And we rank all these asset classes and we will decide, you know, what's the appropriate amount to invest in this given asset class, if at all. So we have to consider the overall attractiveness of the asset class, the risk reward of the asset class when it's in the portfolio versus when it's not. And we have this 12-step process that we follow in deciding what the appropriate percentage of the portfolio that should be allocated to a given asset classes. And Russia previously was a medium-high conviction score. Uh, and after your, your latest research, what's its conviction score? So the, the new conviction rating is a medium. And that's just given the recent price appreciation, we think that the expected return has declined just based off of the baseline estimates. And there is some risk to the upside, but we just don't want to pay too much for future governance improvement or increased payouts. Still reasonably high scoring on the contrarian element, though, right? It doesn't seem like a lot of managers yet are rushing into Russia. I think Russia is a country that's kind of on the list of permanently contrarian investment opportunities. So there are investors out there who have decided that regardless of the valuation opportunity that Russian stocks might give to investors, they're just not going to make an investment. And that's based primarily off of the governance concerns that they have. So we think Russian stocks are less contrarian than they have been over the past few years, just given that the sanction risk has alleviated and the earnings expectations for Russian stocks have increased meaningfully, and the dividends have come through, and you see that in the price returns. But Russian stocks are basically always going to be on the list of contrarian investment opportunities just because there are investors who will not invest in Russia regardless of the valuation opportunity that the stocks present. The ETF we own for Russia invest through ADRs or American Depository Receipts, which are traded on U.S. exchanges. Does does that uh, mitigate the risk at all of uh, investing in Russia? No, um, not really. So basically, when you are investing in ADR, essentially a bank has gone out and purchased the shares of the company that trade on its local exchange in whatever country it's in, and the bank holds those shares in its bank vaults so to speak, and has issued you this receipt, which gives you the right to the shares that the bank owns in its vault and charges you a very tiny fee for basically holding those local shares on your behalf. So a lot of the fundamental risks haven't really changed. If a company is going to go bankrupt, for instance, it's going to affect everybody just the same. And a lot of the governance issues are really 
pertaining to both local share investors and ADR holders. So we've seen instances in the past where ADR shareholders in Russia have been basically totally wiped out. And in another example where the Russian government is actually working alongside investors in Russian stocks is in their progressive tax system that they've actually established. So this really favors Russian energy companies because when oil prices are high, the energy companies are going to be paying a high tax rate. But, and this is where the companies benefit, when the oil prices really decline, the progressive tax system in Russia basically allows for the energy companies to pay a higher tax rate when energy prices are high. So when oil's really high, the tax rate will be higher, but then the energy companies really benefit relative to other energy companies globally when the oil prices are at a trough. So if oil stocks tank because oil's tanked, the Russian companies will actually pay a lower tax rate and be able to keep more of their sales as earnings versus paying it out to the government. So we actually have done some research and we see that when oil is at $100 per barrel, Russian energy companies generate about $8 in free cash flow per barrel. So they generate an 8% margin on the $100 barrel of oil sold. But when oil drops down to $40 per barrel, they still keep $6 in free cash flow per barrel. So that's a massive advantage for the Russian energy companies that you don't see outside of Russia. You also work on our international equity portfolio with uh, Daniel Needham, who's the portfolio manager there. Do you use this sort of multi-asset, this sort of asset class research in your process for the equity portfolio? So the international equity ADR portfolio is designed to be a concentrated portfolio of about 50 to 60 stocks that we think are attractive. And we don't explicitly put in multi-asset class views into the portfolio just because we're trying to pick stocks. That being said, uh, asset class research definitely does influence where we're looking for investment opportunities. So for example, if Russian stocks or Chinese stocks broadly appear to be attractive and the asset class teams do a deep dive and say, well, listen, we think Russian energy stocks are attractive we will then go into our investable universe of ADRs that are ideally covered but not necessarily covered by Morningstar analysts and we'll see which of those companies we might be able to invest in and then we will do our own analysis on the specific stock because we know that investing in one company might give you some factor exposure to the broader asset class but there's also all sorts of idiosyncratic issues that you have to assess. You know, what's the stewardship of the company like? Is management doing a good job allocating capital? Is that specific company valued appropriately? And so we'll do that research and then decide if we should make an allocation to the international equity ADR portfolio. The international equity ADR portfolio will be able to buy ETFs, but the use of the ETFs is basically just to invest in securities that we think are attractive and we don't have access to via our ADR investable universe. Very good. Nabil, thanks so much for being here today. 
Yeah, it was great. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening for Simple But Not Easy. I'm Drew Carter. Goodbye for now. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of publication. Such opinions are subject to change. No Morningstar entity, including Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services, shall be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the content presented. Morningstar makes no representation as of the completeness or accuracy of the information presented. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.